Good morning. Good morning. Hey, there we go. I know, you guys are coming off a, a lowly, sleepy Christmas week, huh? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's good to be here with you all, the Peninsula Grace family. If I have not met you yet, my name's Ross. I get to serve here as family pastor, and it's my pleasure to fill in for Justin this morning on the last Sunday of 2019. So, um, and uh, it kind of feels like we're caught a little bit in between two universes. We're in between Christmas and then we're waiting for New Year's, two holidays. And in our passage this morning, it's kind of fitting because in our passage, we're going to be kind of caught in between two t- uh, time periods within Jesus's life. We're, com- we're, we're coming off in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. We're coming off his birth narrative, which Justin has led us through in the last three weeks. And, but we've yet to really begin looking at Jesus's public ministry, uh, which begins kind of at the end of chapter four. So really over the next couple of weeks, we're in a, this period of limbo and transition in the life of Jesus. And really our main character, even for this morning, is not going to be Jesus himself, but actually the man who would prepare the way for Jesus. But as I hope we will see this morning, everything about the ministry and the teaching and the life of John the Baptist is consumed with and points us to the person and work of Jesus. So I pray that that would be at the center of not everything that I say, but also the center of our hearts as we meditate on on his word, that we would see and know and experience the person and work of Jesus more deeply. So let me pray now toward that end as we uh, begin our, our look at scripture. Pray with me. Father, we come to your word this morning, each one of us, uh, from a completely different set of experiences and uh, perspectives. Some of us are admittedly distracted by the busyness of the holidays. Uh, Some of us are worn down by the burdens that we faced uh, over uh, the last year. And we're, if we're honest with ourselves, as we look toward 2020, we're not super optimistic about it. Some of us, on the other hand, are quite comfortable. Uh, And in our comfortability, uh, we have become complacent, and even if we're honest with ourselves, even arrogant. So Father, would your word do its work this morning? Would you, by the power of your spirit, would you comfort those who are convicted and who are burdened? And then would you simultaneously convict those who are comfortable? And would you do both of these things for your glory and for our joy. And now with the words of my mouth and with the meditations of all of our hearts, would it be pleasing to you? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Cool. How uh, others speak about you, about you and I, it's incredibly revealing, isn't it? The, the, the words that others speak about us, whether in our presence or behind our backs, it's, it's, they're vital. They're revealing. They show us a lot about who we are. That's why when... Uh, you apply for a job with your application that you, you submit references, right? And that's because no matter how compelling and beautiful and competent you present yourself in your interview or in your application, uh, if the words of other people don't corroborate what you're presenting in your interview, then your future employer would be foolish to give you the job. In, in our passage this morning, as we look at Matthew chapter 3, we're going to see one Matthew site, as it were, one of Jesus's references. We're, and we're going to see in particular how God himself 
speaks about Jesus. And we'll see that God uses John the Baptist to speak about Jesus. So let me read for us. We're going to, as we, as we approach this chapter, we're going to approach it in kind of three different chunks. Uh, we're going to look at John has three different interactions with three different groups of people. So we're going to read one of those interactions at a time. So let me read the first paragraph of Matthew chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Just the first six verses together to begin with. Matthew writes, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. As we look forward to 2020, one of the things that we can be most excited about is the Summer Olympics. Do do any of you guys, like Olympic fans, anybody anybody going to Tokyo this, this summer? No, but... So even, even right now, Tokyo is doing a lot of work preparing for the Olympics. It's been in, uh, over the last few Olympics. I don't know how, I don't, I'm not a student of the, the Olympics that, uh, that in-depthly, but I know there's been, it's been in the media a lot about how much it costs and how much work is involved getting ready for the Olympics, and Tokyo is, is no exception, right? But even before construction began, they began works like, like building this stadium. Even before all that began, their prep, they, they had gone, Tokyo went through a lot of preparation. And every city that submits a bid to, to be a host city for the Olympics has to undergo a 10-month rigorous audit by the International Olympics Committee, the IOC. And the, the application fee alone is $150,000. But Tokyo is expected to spend $12 billion on Olympic-related costs. Uh, And that includes things like infrastructure, things like new stadiums, things like consultants, and uh, just building temporary housing. Everything that that goes into preparing for for the Olympics. It takes a lot of work, a lot of time, and a lot of money to prepare for this. But all of that work is for some people, worth it, right? Because one, there's a lot of pride that goes into hosting the Olympics, right, for a city. Secondly, uh, though it costs a lot of money, in some, a lot of cases, you get m- even more money back due to tourism, due to the increased uh, manufacturing and just the marketing of your city. And then also, all the new facilities, the, whether, whether it be roads or uh, housing or uh, stadiums, all that goes to benefit the, the, the residents of the city for, for decades to come. So there's a lot of risk, but there's also a lot of re- reward in preparing for the, uh, for the Olympics. Now, in the, in the ancient world, there's a very similar phenomenon that would occur periodically uh, in, in, among certain great cities, among certain what we call international cities. It, often when a, when a king would travel to a city that was outside of his, the, his capital where he normally resided, the inhabitants of that new city would go out of their way to prepare for the king's arrival. 
right? Major public buildings like temples and amphitheaters, they'd be renovated and cleaned out and everything. A lot of new mansions would be built or at least if not built then forcibly vacated and then renovated to house the the royalty and all of his uh, retinue, his court officials, the diplomats, all of his family and everything like that. Or, and, and in addition to all this, roads would need to be uh, widened and repaved or sometimes paved for the first time in order to, uh, to, uh, to make room for, to, uh, for the huge train that would, that would follow a king in the ancient world wherever he would go with all of his wagons and horses and his guard and, and everything like that, that that a normal city wouldn't normally have to be used for. So, and all of this preparation, just like for the Olympics, all this preparation in the ancient world was worth it because of the massive amounts of wealth that would flood into a city when the wealthiest people in the empire and the kingdom would come and reside there uh, for a time. Now, this is, the, this is the historical context that Matthew has in mind for us when he quotes Isaiah 40. Did you catch that when we read that, that paragraph? When he quotes Isaiah 40 to describe John the Baptist. John is calling the people of Judea to prepare the way for royalty. And in doing so, Matthew is saying that John fulfills what Isaiah said would happen at the coming of the Messianic King. Right? A time of great healing and prosperity and restoration was coming, and John was the messenger who was sent ahead to prepare the way for this majestic royal train. But then notice also how Matthew describes not just his teaching, but his person. He doesn't only fulfill the words of a prophet, but he also acts and dresses like a prophet. He he wears a coat of camel hair and a leather belt. Um, That's that's a picture of that would in outside of Jerusalem that would have been widened for for the prep for the arrival of a king. But John here he wears a a coat of camel hair and a leather belt. And this is exactly the way that Elijah, who is one of uh, Israel's first and earliest prophets, he is described in, in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, which is on the screen. He's identified by having a coat of hair and a leather belt. And Matthew includes this. He's like alluding to, hey, this guy is just like Elijah. But Jesus himself, in fact, later in Matthew, uh, points to this as well. In in chapter 11, verse 13, he says, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he, that is John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. So Jesus himself is, is lumping John in with all the law and the prophets and then specifically identifies him with Elijah. So why does Matthew care about connecting John to first Isaiah and then to Elijah, and, and really to the rest of the prophets. Well, it's because Matthew wants us to see, this is, this is part of his aim, he wants us to see that John is not just some random dude or some man with crazy hair yelling out in the, in the desert. He, John's words are the words of a prophet of God himself. Matthew is telling us how God, through his prophet John, speaks about Jesus and his kingdom. So, from this first interaction between John and the crowds, what does God himself tell us about the nature of King Jesus and his kingdom? The first answer to that question is this, that Jesus is a king 
who takes sin seriously. Jesus is a king who takes sin seriously. And here's where I get that, and here's what I mean by that. Consider just what John is known for here. He's called John the Baptizer. He prepared the way for the arrival of the king, not by physically or literally building roads or new mansions, but he called the people to turn in repentance from their former way of life, in other words, to die in the waters of baptism and then be raised to a new way of life that was fit for the kingdom of the Messiah. And then notice, that that is what baptism symbolizes. And the first step of that repentance, that that message that he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. The first step of that is laid out at the very end in verse 6. It says, they were being baptized by him as they confessed their sins. Right? Repentance begins when we identify and publicly put to words the behavior that we wish to turn from. Right? The crowds, they responded to Jesus' kingdom with confession. In, ni- in the year 1900, less than 1% of Koreans were Christians. Today, 29% of just South Koreans uh, are Christians. That's nearly 18 million people in the span of about a decade. Over the last century, amazing revival and gospel renewal has taken place in that country. And many historians, they trace the beginning of that, that movement to one sp- particular meeting, a meeting of pastors and missionaries in, in, uh, in Pyongyang, which is now in North Korea. And that, uh, that they came in that meeting praying for revival. And God, obviously, over the last century, has answered that prayer in an amazing way. But just listen to this one description of, of, one, pa- one, of the, uh, one of the Korean pastors, the description of what happened in that meeting. He writes this, Man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down and weep, and then throw himself to the floor and beat the floor with his fists in perfect agony of conviction. One of the cooks even tried to make a confession, but he broke down in the midst of it and cried to me across the room, Pastor, tell me, is there any hope for me? Can I be forgiven? And then he threw himself to the floor and wept and wept and almost screamed in agony. Sometimes after a confession, the whole audience would break out in audible prayer, and the effect of that audience of hundreds of men praying together in audible prayer was something indescribable. Again, after another confession, they would break out in uncontrollable weeping, and we would all weep. We could not help it. And so the meeting went on until 2 o'clock a.m. with confession and weeping and praying. That's a really striking story, and it's from, obviously, a culture that's very different from our own. But it illustrates the principle, this principle. That gospel renewal, revival, is always preceded by people beginning to take their sin seriously. Confession precedes renewal. And as a family, we have a big vision Right? We want to reproduce disciples so that everyone is presented complete in Him. That's huge. That's it. But if we're ever going to see this, this level, this depth of, of, of gospel renewal in 
the Central Peninsula area, we must learn, like Jesus and like the crowds that heard John the Baptist, we must learn to take our sin seriously. We must be marked by a radical confession of sin. It should, be marked by, it should mark our, even our home and our family life, right? Maybe, maybe this means in your family designating a time in the, in the week uh, around, either around the dinner table or at bedtime or in the morning at breakfast time, where you take and uh, help each other as a family take an honest inventory of, man, where, where did I not, where was I not following Jesus well over the last 24 hours? What, what do I need to, what, what sins do I need to, to, to confess or bring to the surface? All right, as we reflect on how we, uh, the day went, be intentional about where we failed and where we need Jesus. All right, or maybe it means, uh, what, what could it look like for your community group uh, to take sin seriously and to open confess sin with one another? All right, that's what it looks like to live within Jesus' kingdom. That's a natural, just as the crowds experience, that's a, that's a natural response to the gospel. So in, this, in our first point for this morning, we see that God, through John, tells us that Jesus is a king who takes sin seriously. But beginning in verse 7, we, we have some new characters enter the scene. And as John interacts with these new characters, we hear God tell us a second attribute of Jesus, the king. So let me read for us uh, the section, uh, verses 7 through 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up these stones, or God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, that, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming is after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This passage doesn't give, give us any softballs, right? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of weight even in this. And I don't, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't even like preaching. I mean, in my flesh, I don't like preaching words like that. Uh, but they're here for a reason. All right, whereas the crowds were, were coming out to John and, and humbly uh, being baptized and confessing their sins, the religious leaders of John's day, that is the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came with a completely different set of motives, right? These people, unlike the crowds who saw their need for repentance and confession, had grown comfortable. So in this next section, we see John interact with the comfortable of his day. But this comfort, as we saw here, John described, it was unjustified. And John blasts these leaders for their pride with his words. He calls them snakes. And then he tells them, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now, what's he getting at here? Uh, with these words, he attacks their sin of presumption. It was their prideful assumption that because they were descendants of Abraham, uh, the father of the Jewish people, that 
they were somehow guaranteed the favor of God regardless of the true state of their heart. And this is very similar to the, to the way Jesus himself would describe these leaders later in Matthew, particularly in chapter 23. Jesus would famously call the, the Pharisees whitewashed tombs who, who looked beautiful on the outside but inside are full of dead men's bones. Uh, and notice what exactly... John condemns these leaders for. It is uh, not primarily for their outward actions, although he does call them to bear fruit with repentance, but what he identifies is their sin of presumption. Their, 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 their prideful assumptions about themselves that are in their minds, their, their thinking patterns, because of the, the arrogant attitude and posture of their hearts. He aims his message our hearts, and that's the hearts of his leaders, of these leaders. The question is, where have you and I drifted toward unjustified comfort because we, like the Pharisees or Sadducees, believe false assumptions about ourselves? This is, this is inevitably what happens in all spheres of life. I remember growing up, I played a lot of basketball. Uh, in particular, when I was younger, like elementary and middle school, uh, I loved basketball because, one, I, for whatever reason, hit my growth spurt earlier than all the rest of my friends, and I had some level of athletic ability. So basketball really for me was just standing under the hoop and shooting 50 times and maybe making one of them. You know, you've all been to elementary basketball games and where, you, where you've seen that kind of stuff happen. Um, so the sport really re required very little work for me, and I was somewhat proficient at it. Um, and those, that, that success as a kid made me to believe some false assumptions about myself, that, that it would always, uh, that the sport would always be easy to me, that I for sure had a career in the NBA waiting for me, that I would never really have to work that hard. But quickly, very quickly after uh, beginning high school, all of those false assumptions began to show themselves for what they really were. I very quickly realized, oh, I'm not as athletic as everybody anymore, and all my friends hit their growth spurts as well. Uh, so I'm not really that much taller than anybody either. The sport required a lot more work, right? And it, was a, it, was, it required a lot of work even just to get on the team, let alone uh, be good at the sport. Right? My previous complacency was completely mistaken and unjustified. And I've learned that that same principle that made me unjustifiably comfort, comfortable in athletics also makes me unjustifiably uncomfortable in my walk with Jesus. I assume that since I'm going to church, I can kind of put a check mark next to that one and say, me and Jesus, we're all good. Right? Or, uh, you know, he wants me to serve some or uh, give a little bit, check. Check, we're good. Me and Jesus, we're good to go. These words of John, however, they point us to something a lot truer and a lot deeper. They point us to bear fruit that evidences radical heart change. Not only is Jesus a king who takes sin seriously, but our application from, from this point is that Jesus is also a king who takes life change seriously. So what does it look like for us who, who, as all humans, have a, a natural tendency to drift toward comfort 
and complacency to believe and to tell ourselves false assumptions about ourselves to make us feel better than we really are like the Pharisees and the Sadducees? What does it look like for us to become citizens who are truly fit for the kingdom of Jesus? Uh, there's a lot of things that we can do to avoid the trap of the, the, of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Uh, but there's just one application that I want us to consider this morning. If we're going to be a body that passionately chases after holiness, then you and I need one another. Right? Hypocrisy is subtle and sneaky, and you're in my tendency to grow comfortable based on external things is pervasive. As a result, I need relationships with one or two other people who can openly and honestly point out my blind spots and graciously tell me where I'm not bearing fruit with repentance. Right? This is just what it means to be humans as a sinner. Right? It's like as if we're all at an ugly Christmas sweater party and we all have our flies down, right? And nobody's going around telling us, hey, you're kind of making yourself look like an idiot here, right? We, because we can't see uh, our mistakes, right? We desperately need people in our lives who we can periodically ask, where am I not living like a citizen of Christ's kingdom? All right, for those of you who are married, your spouse is probably the person in the best position to do, to do this for you, and sometimes painfully so. Uh, and the marriage relationship is to be one in which both partners are continually not nagging or always pointing out each other's weaknesses and failures, but continually spurring one another on to better follow Jesus. But whether you're married or not, this is why discipleship groups are so vital. All right, so maybe a next step uh, for you coming out of this is to identify one or two people whom you could invite, whom you could trust, to invite to speak into your life, to, to, to speak, to help you fight and combat sin in your life, to meet with on a somewhat regular basis, and in return, encourage them to better reflect Jesus. All right, and uh, if you're here and you're a youth, Right, don't think that this is something that also has to wait till you're an adult. If you're in middle school or high school, uh, this is the perfect time to start building those relationships right now. So maybe it's your, a parent or an adult that you trust, somebody that works in the youth group. Next time you have a conversation, ask, where is my life not matching up with my profession, with my claim to be a follower of Jesus? What, what, what behaviors and actions do you see in me that show a lack of repentance? I remember a couple years into my, our, my marriage, Monica pointed out to me that I uh, was demonstrating a great lack of patience. And when, I, when she told me that, I, was, I thought she was the one that was blind and that she was the one who was out of touch. It took, totally took me uh, by surprise or came out of my... Uh, I wasn't on my radar. I always thought I was a, a patient person, right? but her insight into my life proved that my so-called patience was really super shallow, right? And that's, that's the point. When, when someone points out your sin to you, 90% of the time, you're going to disagree with them. And that's the point, right? We, we need them. We need people to disagree with us. So take John's words seriously. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and invite others to help you. That's what Jesus is all about. That's why John later would go down and, and, and tell us that Jesus is, is like a, a farmer who's clearing the threshing f- 
floor, he comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That fire is refining. Jesus is about refining his people. He's about creating pure and holy people. So press into that. So we've seen John in the crowds, we've seen John in the comfortable, and now in our final paragraph we're going to turn to, we'll see John interact with the Christ. Jesus enters the scene in verse 13. So let's read verses 13 through 17 together. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it now be so, for thus it is fulfilling, or for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and, and, Jesus, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my son, beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, there's a lot of depth and mystery and some question marks packed into just a few verses. So let's do, just for the time that we have remaining, let's do the hard work of trying to figure out what Matthew is trying to teach us through this interaction with Jesus. First, let's answer the same question that John asks, right? Why was Jesus coming to be baptized? It makes sense to us why Jesus was or why John would ask this, right? The, the people of Israel were being baptized uh, after confessing their sins as a symbol of repentance. Jesus, however, had no need to confess sin nor repent of any sins. So Jesus instead tells us that he must be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. That's a kind of cryptic answer. Uh, so what does he mean? Really, Jesus is pointing toward two things. First, he's pointing us back to Israel's history, and then secondly, he's pointing us forward to what he would do at the end of his life. So let's, I mean, just consider where this all took place. We're told that Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, right, which is in the eastern part, the eastern border of, of the nation of Israel. And way back in the time of Joshua and the people of Israel's history, that's 1,400 years previous to Jesus, uh, the people of Israel had passed through those same waters in their journey to enter the land promised to them by God for the first time. Yet here's the thing. As soon as Israel entered the promised land, as soon as Israel passed through the waters of the Jordan, they failed to keep the covenant with God. And in doing so, they brought tremendous suffering on themselves. Jesus then is showing himself to be a new Israel, and even more than that, a, a truer and better Israel. Right? We saw Matthew make the same point last week when he showed how Jesus, just like Israel, was the son of God who, who, was, who God called out of Egypt. Um, and now we see the true and better Israel passing through the Jordan after an exile and leading them to the covenant blessings of the kingdom of God. So his back, baptism in that way points backwards to the nation of Israel. He is the true Israel who would fulfill all righteous, the righteous requirements of the covenant that Israel failed to keep. And yet at the same time, his baptism would point forward as well, right? Jesus comes to be baptized in the same waters as the crowds. In other words, Jesus receives the same baptism as his people. He identified himself with the need and the brokenness 
of the people. And by identifying with their sin, though he was sinless, he is pointing forward to the way that he would ultimately save them from their sins. His baptism, like all baptism, points to the cross. We read in Romans chapter 6, it's on the screen, our water baptism is meant to be a picture of Jesus' true baptism into the waters of death in which he died on a cross and then rose again, just as we come rising out of the water in baptism. So Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And whereas our baptism points backward to the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus' baptism points forward to the cross and to the empty tomb. And his descent here with John, with his descent into the Jordan, we see his descent into the grave on our behalf. In this way, Jesus in his baptism fulfills all righteousness. He's pointing backward to Israel and he's pointing forward to the cross. He shows us the way in which he, as the righteous son, the true Israel, would restore the unrighteous son, that's Israel and that's you and me, back to a right relationship with the Father. And then we hear a voice from heaven confirming everything that Jesus says in verse 17. God smiles on his righteous king and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, God here is actually, he's kind of referring to two separate prophecies, and he's, and he's blending them together. First, he, they're both on the screen behind me. First, he alludes to Psalm 2-7, where in the context, the writer is describing the messianic king like David, who would establish the reign of God on earth. Yet, uh, so by including this, Uh, He's emphasizing that Jesus is God's chosen king. Yet he's not the king that the Jews expected. So he summarizes, secondly, Isaiah 42.1, where Isaiah writes, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And again here, the context is crucial. For it, it comes from one of the greatest, the great servant songs of the book of Isaiah, in which the prophet describes the suffering servant who would lead and serve his people, Israel. So at the beginning of the chapter, we saw God speaking through his prophet, declaring the arrival of the king. And now at the end of our section, God is speaking directly from heaven, confirming Jesus as his chosen king. For though he is humbled now as a servant, he's receiving baptism, identifying with the the sin and the need and the brokenness of his people as a suffering servant, he will one day conquer sin and suffering and lead his people to a new and glorious kingdom. From John's preaching to the crowds, we learn that Jesus is a king who takes sin seriously. From his preaching of the comfortable, we see that Jesus is a king who takes life change seriously. Now from John's interaction with Christ, we see that Jesus is a king who serves his people seriously. And he serves us by identifying with the sin that he takes so seriously. And then in his baptism, he beautifully shows us the length that he would go to rescue us from that sin. 
by, by nailing that sin to the cross and then rising a, from the dead and winning for us true life change in His resurrection. In other words, Jesus does not merely tell us what to do to enter the kingdom. He's not a, a slave master yelling at us, repent, repent, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. No, He, he stoops low to serve us. He, he tells us to take sin seriously and to take repentance seriously, but He Himself makes us fit for the kingdom through His humility, through the cross. He's not a slave master, but a master slave who stoops low to serve us. So whether you're here and you're like the crowds, you're broken by your sin and you sense within yourself uh, that same brokenness, or whether you're here and you're like the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees, comfortable in your sin, Matthew invites us to be made fit for the kingdom through the work of Christ our King. And it is only by trusting in what He has done for us, only by looking to the One who fulfilled all righteousness, who lived the life we could never live, who died the death that we deserved to die, and then rose again with new life in hand. Only by looking and trusting in Him can we truly live as those fit for the kingdom. Can we truly walk and vulnerable confession and, and truly experience heart-level life change. So would you pray with me now as we close? Father, we long to see uh, uh, as much as we celebrate the first coming uh, of the King, we long to see your glorious return. We long to see a deep heart-level renewal uh, in your gospel in, in our church, in our homes, and in our community. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, you would accomplish that by your Spirit through your Word. Lord, would you make us fit for your kingdom as we, as we join you in taking sin seriously, as we join you in pursuing holiness and, and life change, and would, would you by the Spirit by your Spirit, cause us to rest in you. The King who would serve us, the King who would stoop low to make us fit for your kingdom. Lord, would you grant us repentance where we think that we can uh, make ourselves fit for that kingdom? And would, we, uh, would you grant us faith to trust only in your work on our behalf? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>